but he just went dead silent. Your internal clocks are right on schedule, I suppose. Hey, don't forget, speaking of internal clocks, you've got to set your clocks forward next week. Yeah, I'm with you. We just set them back here. I, I know. I'd be happy if we just stopped messing around with them, but I tell you what, as with many things, they didn't ask me for my opinion. I'm happy to give it if they ever do, but... <laughs> okay, let us pray. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of the living God, have mercy upon us sinners. Amen. Again we pray. O God, whose glory it is always to have mercy, be gracious to all who have gone astray from your ways and bring them again with penitent hearts and steadfast faith to embrace and hold fast the unchangeable truth of your word. Through Jesus Christ, your Son, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. All right. The verse of the week from the book of Job, Job 28, 28. Let's speak this together. Behold the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom, and to depart from evil is understanding. Yes, this is something that you probably wouldn't expect from the book of Job, because it sounds an awful lot like something from the book of Proverbs, correct. All the more reason to read the book of Job. It has a lot more in it than what you remember, I guarantee you that. So, firstly, behold. This is an important word. Uh, behold is like saying, hey, heads up, pay attention to this. What's coming is really important. Or like what the kids used to say, and I don't know if they still say this, this is going to make me feel old, when they say, hey, check it. And say, hey, check it, the fear of the Lord. Now don't write that into your Bible. That's like <laughs> one of those weird New Age translations that I don't care for. But anyway, the sense of this is, pay, pay very close attention to this because this is something that's important. Behold. The fear of the Lord, and we've talked about this. What does fear mean? Yes, respect, but there's, you're, and you're right. This always happens. You're right. You're just, you don't say the specific word that I want you to say. It's another word that starts with R. Yes, reverence. So respect is correct, and that falls in... Uh, Okay, you, it's reverence. The fear of the Lord is the reverence of the Lord. You revere the Lord. You know who the Lord is, and uh, you offer him the thanks and praise that he deserves. It's sort of like social customs. This is the, an example I've used before. If you're going to meet the President of the United States or have dinner with the Queen of England, there are certain social graces that you, uh, that you do. Uh, you don't talk to the queen or to the president the same way that you talk to your best friend who lives down the street. You know, there, there is a different level of interaction between the two of you because you have reverence for the person. You have fear. Not being afraid. Hey, the fear of the Lord, that, that is fear, is wisdom. That is wisdom. Uh, 
If somebody asks you, hey, what is wisdom? And, and don't answer with this, oh, the fear of the Lord. That's not what I'm trying to get you to say. What is wisdom? Uh, discernment or understanding. Sure, discernment, understanding. Okay, knowledge, sure. It's a particular kind of knowledge. One funny thing that I heard once is that intelligence is knowing that a tomato is a fruit, but wisdom is knowing not to put a tomato in a fruit salad. So there's a difference between knowledge in the sense that I know that tomato is a fruit and the knowledge of wisdom that is a, this knowledge from experience. A, a deeper set knowledge that is more than something, more than like a trivia thing. You can get on to Jeopardy uh, if you're really intelligent and you can answer a whole bunch of trivia questions, but just because you can do that doesn't mean that you're necessarily wise because it's a different kind of wisdom. Or, uh, excuse me. It would, and this is part of it, um, in some of these poetical books. Yeah, Job is one of the poetical books. Uh, there's often kind of a doubling for emphasis. You'll see it a lot in the Psalms. Behold, the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom. And to depart from evil is understanding, which is in some sense the same as saying the fear of the Lord is departing from evil. And that is wisdom and that is understanding. Um, so you're right. Departing from evil is important because really this is all about what the ten words are about. And the ten words are the commands, of course. But they, they don't exist just to punish. They exist so that they can show you this is the way to go. You should depart from evil. Don't do these things because they're really bad for you. Don't drink bleach under the kitchen cabinet because it's poison for you and it's going to hurt you. The, the rule to do that kind of Thing doesn't exist to squash your fun. It exists to keep you away from the things that are harmful. So the message of Scripture is always, uh, and the book of Amos is a really good place to look at this, run away from evil, don't touch evil, run to good and touch good instead. And that's what the Ten Commandments are all about. Depart from evil. So departing from evil is understanding because in that sense, when you depart from evil you are fleeing from the thing that clouds you and fleeing to the thing that is wisdom. Because the other answer to the question of what is wisdom, and that's you know kind of a trick question and an unfair question because I worded it as what is wisdom, but I could have asked it like this, who is wisdom? See, and now, now you get the sense that wisdom is more than just something, uh, some kind or type of knowledge, uh, it is in fact also a person, and wisdom is the person of Christ. That's another thing that you see in the book of Proverbs. Wisdom takes on a persona and is a character, and wisdom says things like, come into my house, all you who are weary, and I will feed you. The wine has been prepared, and the bread is for you to eat. And you can't read that in the Proverbs and not think, oh, wow, that sounds an awful lot like Jesus, doesn't it? Because it is, because Christ is wisdom. So departing from evil is, is wisdom and fleeing to wisdom in the fear of the Lord. 
and it is understanding. And this is kind of, I like this idea of understanding and its connection with wisdom uh, because of its tie-in with the fall of man in the Garden of Eden in Genesis chapter 3. What would make you think about this in terms of Genesis 3? Sure. Yes. Yes, you're correct. You're on the right track, but I need you to back up just a little bit. Before they eat of the fruit, what is part of the temptation? That the, that the fruit would give them wisdom and knowledge. That yes. Yes, that, that if they ate of that fruit, they would have wisdom and understanding just like the Lord does in knowing good and evil. See, there's sort of the fine print, the caveat. You'll have knowledge and wisdom and understanding just like the Lord in knowing good and evil. And we can talk all about the fall, but we are on a time, uh, time crunch. So wisdom and understanding then tie in with that because this whole business with Christ is kind of an anti-Garden of Eden temptation. The temptation is this is what's going to make you wise and this is what will give you understanding. But the confession of Christ is actually this is what will make you wise. I will make you wise and I will show you what understanding is. In me you'll understand life and salvation and uh, you'll understand the Father in a way that you couldn't before. You'll understand good and evil in me in a way that you couldn't ever before even after having eaten of the tree of good and evil. Okay? Uh, Alright, let's speak this again. Behold, the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom. And to depart from evil is understanding. Yes. What is the third commandment? Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. What does this mean? We should fear and love God so that we do not despise preaching and his word, but hold it sacred and gladly hear and learn. Yes, good. Two quick things that I want to talk about with this. Firstly, I've said this before and I say it a lot because I love it, but in the Latin text of the small catechism, not the German, this translation is from the German, but in the Latin there is an addition that says you should fear and love God so that you do not despise preaching and his word and the divinely inspired sermons, which is an important addition because it also says exactly what I say, and that is the sermons are not mine. I sit down at my computer and I type them out and I study to put words on a page in some kind of an intelligent fashion so I don't get into the pulpit and look like a big dummy so I can show off my big seminary education. <laughs> hey. But I am not the one really who is speaking the words and when somebody says that word really was what I needed to hear for better or for worse I can never be the one to take the credit because I am not the one who knows that and I'm not the one who utilizes the word. It is always the work of God. So in, in this sense, you can also say that the sermons are divinely inspired in that sense because the Lord is the one who is using and delivering that word. Okay? Now, here's the second thing. 
I, I always have a bone to pick with this explanation of the small catechism and its counterpart in the large catechism because I think it's too simple-minded. It's, it, it's too singularly focused. And its singular focus is only on the word. And, and by that, I don't mean the word as in the person of Christ. I mean the word as in you come to church so that you can hear readings and hear a sermon and go home, which is not only what it is. Because as you know, the entire liturgy drives you to the sacrament. That's why the liturgy is the way that it is. Uh, all of the, you encounter the word in two forms, as in the person. You encounter the word in what you here and what is presented to you in, in the, as it is delivered by the Spirit, but you also encounter the Word in the flesh and blood. And all of the other encounters with the Word exist to drive you to where you encounter Him in flesh and blood. Uh, so when you look at the third commandment, it is not just about one, hey, Better get to church because the Lord wants you in that pew. And if you're not in that pew, boy, he's going to be angry at you. And that is something Luther talks about in the large catechism, that uh, too many people abuse the third commandment because they say, oh, well, the third commandment means I need to be in church, period. So I'm going to go to church. And then you have a whole bunch of people who only go to church because they think they have to go to church or else God will punish them. And then they don't listen to the readings. They don't pay attention. He says they, they haven't learned anything from any sermon through the entirety of the liturgical year because they just go to church with closed ears and a hard heart because the only thing that they care about is making sure that I'm sitting in a pew on a Sunday morning or else lightning's going to strike me at some point during the week or the big black car is going to drive down your gravel driveway to visit you on Monday morning. Okay? So uh, that's, that's the first thing that, it doesn't, that it's not about, that the Sabbath doesn't mean. The second thing that it doesn't mean is that you only go as if you are a student, that you show up to service with your pen and paper and your spectacles and then you sit during the, the readings and the sermon and just take frantic notes and then when all of that's done you say, boy, well that was really good, now church is done for me. Okay? The word and the sacraments always go together. So part of what the third commandment is about and part of what it means that it's the Lord's day and that it is a holy day and that he wants it to be holy and that he wants you to come here, take a break from all your work and come to my house is so that all who hunger and thirst for righteousness can be filled with the food that he gives, both spiritual and physical. So that's my bone to pick is always that Luther's primary concern is just about, oh, you got to hear the word, you got you to hear the readings of the Bible, and that's what it's all about. And it isn't the only thing that it's all about. Uh, so that's kind, of, that's kind of that. Any questions? Okay, before you go to Sunday school, and this is for the adults too, Sunday school and Bible class have to end early today because the choir and the kids have to quick get together to practice the hymn that you all are singing in church next Sunday. So teachers and kids and adults and pastor, be aware. Yeah, and hey, I included myself. Be aware that class is gonna end maybe 10 to 15 minutes earlier today than it typically would.
Okay. You may depart. Master. Yes. Uh, a, uh, a student asked the preacher's son, uh, how, does, how does your dad get an inspiration every Sunday in his Concordia Publishing House? <laughs> <laughs> well, <laughs> that's, you know, that's sometimes uh, with many folks how it ends up going. My, my good friend is a Presbyterian was telling me that somewhere he, he listened to a, a, a sermon from some Presbyterian wherever, and the next Sunday their pastor gave the exact word for word same sermon. And he said, <laughs> if he's going to order sermons, he says, why do we need him? I can go read the sermon. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Writing, sermon, writing sermons is hard work. Yeah. And, uh, and there are lots of resources, but this is one reason why being on the one year, or as I call it, the historic lectionary, is, is actually easier uh, for the pastor, not because every year it's the same text. That gets hard. Uh, but the easy part is, because it is the historic lectionary, because the gospel reading that you're hearing like today, the third Sunday in Lent, Oculi, the, the gospel reading you're going to hear today is the same gospel reading they were already, that they were you know, doing at, on this Sunday every year uh, all the way back, um, you know, fifth, sixth century of the church. Uh, actually, maybe even the third and fourth, if you, if you want to be crazy like I am and think that it went that far back. But what that means is there are all kinds of writings from the church fathers and from all of these other pastors and bishops who have gone before you that you can read and get inspiration from to help you because everybody comes at it from a slightly different angle. And if you ever doubted that there were many facets to scripture, all you have to do is read 10 different homilies from 10 different church fathers on the same text and you will get 10 completely different things. And it's great. So you have lots of different resources. Now, if you're on the three-year lectionary, which is not a historic lectionary, that one is from the 1960s, then you don't ha really have any resources because it's so brand new. There's nothing to go along with it. So, all the more reason to be historic. Can I try a question? Yes, ma'am. 30 years ago, when my kids were in midweek, mm -hmm. Yes. This is by keeping it holy. What's the difference? Trans Translation. It's updated language. I can't tell you why they changed it. I do get kind of irked. There is already a new translation of the catechism that's different than the one we use here. But the one that we use here is the one that I grew up with, and I don't want to learn a new one. And I, so we, just for the sake of consistency, we're still using one translation and that just makes it easy. But there are a lot of alterations. Sometimes they change little things because they worry about the con that, that there's possible confusion in the way that it's worded. So maybe it's, uh, maybe there was concern about the fact that it said to keep it holy as if you were the one that was in charge of keeping it holy. Uh, instead of by keeping it holy in the sense that it is kept holy by 
the preaching of the gospel and the right reception of it. That's the only thing that I can think about. But, but little changes like that are just translation, uh, differences in translation. It's like the Bible. You can, you can take three different translations and read the same verse, and they're all going to be ever so slightly different. And the reason for that is because the language, translation is hard work. A language doesn't ever come over into another language exactly the way that it is worded. So when you're translating the catechism even from the German or from the Latin, you have to work it just a little bit so that it sounds good and that it means kind of the same thing but also makes sense. Because you can translate it in a way where it means exactly what it says but it makes absolutely no sense. So just little, little translation things, there really isn't a difference between them between the two translations, as long as you understand what the third commandment is really about. I just, I don't see how it changed the meaning of it. Well, good. If you don't see how it changed the meaning, then you are somebody who is, in many ways, more wise than the people who worked on the translations. But it's irritating because, yes. you know, I know the third commandment, but it's not that. Yes. Well, this is, I've said this about hymns before. If, the, if there is a way that you know it, say it the way you know it. If there's a way that you learned it, say it the way that you learned it. Um, now, there are exceptions, of course, because the way that I learned the Ten Commandments was in the Reformed Church, so the numbers are different. And in fact, because I learned that at such an early age, growing up in that church body, I still to this day have trouble with the commandments. So if somebody asks me, hey, quick, uh, think fast, what is the sixth commandment? I have to stop and go, okay, uh, well, it was this one, and then it was backed up for, all right, so it's this one now. So I. Some of the confusion is in eight, nine, and 10 with other. It's, it's nine and 10 and one and two. It's, it's, is there a difference between having a God and worshiping a God? And is there a difference between coveting a house and coveting possessions? That's, that's the difference. The reform side says, well, yes, there's a difference between having a God and worshiping that God, so we'll split that one up. So then the third commandment ends up being, don't take the Lord's name in vain. And the fourth commandment is the Sabbath day. Now the Lutherans say, no, there's no difference between having a God and worshiping a God. If you have a God, then you worship that God. And that's, so that's all really the same. But there is a difference between coveting your neighbor's house, which is to say his possessions, and coveting your neighbor's wife and manservant and maidservant, which is coveting your neighbor's uh, life, in a sense. Uh, so we, it's just a difference. And, and the Hebrew can go either way. The way that it's versed and metered, it, it can go either way. It's really not something worth fighting about. You're still getting all the commandments. Anyway, we got to Zoom, because we've got a hymn to learn, and we have to be done early. This is like, get out early. pardon me? And we're gonna get out early. We, ha we have to, <laughs> we have to because. Uh, I'm, just, I'm just here to remind you. <laughs> well, I appreciate it because you, you know how things go. Yeah, so the hymn for this month is 455 in the hymnal. It's called the Royal Banners Forward Go. I have a feeling this is gonna be brand new to you. I told you last week that this new hymn for this month was going to be really good, and I hope not to disappoint you today. I think it's really good. 
It is an older hymn from the, from the Latin corpus, the body of Latin hymnody in the church. The translator for this hymn is a guy named John Mason Neal, who we have talked about before. And if you look in the back of the hymnal, you can look at the index of translators. John Mason Neal, uh, I, ha I didn't actually look, so I'm about to, I'm gonna. One time I was told by a lawyer, the biggest mistake a lawyer can ever make is to ask a question they don't already know the answer to. <laughs> and I'm about to commit that error here because I'm gonna put money that next to Catherine Winkworth, the name that has the most translations in here after her is John Mason Neal. Because Neal was uh, quite a prolific translator of Latin hymnody and just translated an immense number of hymns during the later part of the 19th century. Just an incredible number of these Latin hymns that he went through and translated and put to meter and, and rhyme. Just, and, and they're good too. Uh, a lot of the translations of Neil's remain in their original form. Many of them have been edited slightly just with updated language, but a lot of them haven't because there's still such good translation. So really an important figure in the church uh, as far as translation goes. Again, remember he was an Anglican. He was an Anglican priest. He, he never got sent to a parish because he sympathized with the Oxford movement, which was the movement that said, hey, we shouldn't be all happy clappy. We should wear the proper vestments and we should act in the service as if something mattered. Hey, that sounds kind of familiar, doesn't it? And uh, he never got a call because of it, because they said, hey, that's, no, no, we don't want any of that kind of business. We want to be happy clappy, so now you're not going to get a church, because we don't want your kind. Uh, which also sounds familiar for certain eras of the church. But he ended up, I believe, he uh, worked at a, a convent or, or a hospital where the nuns became nurses. He did something like that as a chaplain there, and that was kind of what he did while he translated. Um, this is a... This is a hymn that Neil himself said was uh, one of the crown jewels of hymns from the Latin corpus of, of hymns, one of his most favorite and one, one that he thought was perhaps one of the most important that he had translated, uh, which should indicate to you one reason why I said it was a really, really good hymn. Um, the text of the hymn is an ode to the cross of Christ, and in particular, the crucifixion? Yes. Is there, do you have a question? I was, that's the sentence I'm on. What does it mean in the one who him upon it? Oh, that's a typo. Oh, okay. The one who hung upon it. Oh, okay. That's what it's, yeah, sorry. I guess you could see what was on my mind while I was typing this. Yeah, it's, it's an ode to the cross and to, the one who hung upon it. It's uh, an ode to Christ. To, it's about the crucifixion, about the cross. And you'll see why his, uh, the hymn, just this is a piece of history, why it is about the cross in just a minute here. When, uh, the author is a, a fellow, I'm going to read you his whole name if you don't have the handout, just because it's great. Venantius Honorius Clamantinus Fortunatus. You just wait. You just wait till the next time we baptize a baby boy and we come in there. Ah, yes, 
Venantius Honorius. <laughs> oh my goodness, what a name. Um, he's pretty much uh, universally referred to simply as Fortunatus. In fact, there are some tunes in the hymnal called Fortunatus and Fortunatus New that are named after this hymn writer. He was a, a sixth century sixth century into the beginning of the seventh century, lived a good long life, Christian. He was Italian, born at the north, kind of northwest corner of Italy, inland. He wasn't on the boot part. He was up on the thigh. And uh, <laughs> not as many people laughed at that as I thought. Listen, you don't know how much time I actually spend thinking of funny things to say that I put into Bible class. It's not all extemporaneous, I'll tell you that. <laughs> so, um, anyway, so up in the northwest part of Italy, and uh, he wanted to serve the church, and um, wanted, so he started studying at the university uh, after being converted to Christianity. He was pretty young when he, when he was converted to Christianity. Son of Roman citizens, pagans, um, and then he converted. And um, while he was studying poetry at the University of Ravenna, he contracted a disease that began to attack his eyes, and he slowly started going blind, which is not so good for somebody who's a student of poetry. And the legend around him, I say legend because it maybe is history and also maybe isn't. It's just, this is what everybody says. The legend is that he went to a chapel where there was an, a chapel of St. Martin of Tours and uh, took some oil. Either he did it or one of his friends took some oil from that chapel and brought it to him and they anointed his eyes with the oil from that chapel, and he regained his sight. Uh, so he said, because of the miraculous occurrence, he would then devote his life to the service of the church, in particular in the service of St. Martin of Tours. By the way, St. Martin of Tours is the namesake of Martin Luther, in case you were curious. Because what they used to do is, if you were born on a certain date or baptized on a certain date. I think it was the date you were born. If it was a, a, a saint day, then your name would be the name of the saint whose day you were born on, uh, which is why Martin is Martin. Anyway, so because of that miraculous healing and his desire to serve the church, he took a pilgrimage to Poitiers, which is in Gaul, which is uh, France. And he, uh, he went to this area of Poitiers, which was already a rich area for theology and the church. There was a, an, an early church, well, I guess not so early church father, but a, third, a, a fourth century church father named Hilary of Poitiers. Hilary is, a, he is a man, H-I-L-A-R-Y. Sometimes there's a prayer in the congregation at prayer from Hilary of Poitiers. Very, pretty good, actually. Very, uh, good father. A lot of really nice stuff that he wrote. But, so that's an area that uh, was very, very well versed in Christianity. Very faithful region of Gaul. 
uh, not all the Gaulish regions were, but this one was. So he went there and there was a shrine to St. Martin of Tours there in Poitiers that he wanted to go and visit. And uh, while he was there, he decided to spend the rest of his life there in Gaul, serving those people, and ended up meeting a woman named uh, Radagunda. <laughs> How'd you like to have a little girl named that? <laughs> Radagunda. Radagunda was a Thuringian, which is a part of Germany. So she's a, a, a princess from Thuringia that married a Frankish king, or maybe perhaps a prince, and then ended up becoming the queen, a Frankish queen in the, in the region of Gaul. And uh, so she was a pretty big time powerful woman and was also a very devout Christian. And she wanted to form a monastery, which was what all the kind of big time Christians were doing at the time. So she formed a, uh, an abbey, an abbey of the Holy Cross, which in France is St. Croix. Uh, C-R-O-I-X, St. Croix, um, the Holy Cross. So she founded this monastery, and then she and, uh, she and uh, Fortunatus became friends and became a little bit more than friends. They had kind of a strange, semi-romantic relationship with one another. They were more than platonic buddies. And uh, he... <laughs> He became a monk at the abbey because he liked her, which seems counterintuitive to me. Uh, that one was extemporaneous. <laughs> okay, so he became a monk at this monastery because he wanted to spend time with Radagunda while she was there. And then um, ended up actually becoming the abbey, uh, or the, the abbot, the bishop of that abbey. So he was, he was, a few years later, was in charge of the entire abbey and was in charge of the spiritual welfare of all of the monks that were there. And here's the history now of this hymn. He wrote this hymn, text and tune, and you can see this is part of the, like a, a, a facsimile, a, co a copy of one of the original manuscripts here on the side. The, the original hymn, Vexilla Regis Proderunt. And if you look really carefully, you can see how the, the letters here actually spell it out. And I'll play you the original chant, and then you can actually follow along with the nooms, these little square things. You can, and look at that, you'll start to learn a little bit of Gregorian chant even while you're here. Okay. But anyway, so he wrote this at uh, Radagunda's request, because she thought, hey, this is a monastery of the Holy Cross, we ought to have a piece of the Holy Cross here, don't you think? So she contacted one of the uh, patriarchs of the East and, and ended up talking to the emperor of the East, of Byz Byzantium, and said, hey, uh, listen, Justinian, we'd like a piece of the one true cross, because the cross was kind of split up and then it was held there. It was, the pieces of it were sacred. And... Um, they said, okay, we'll send you a piece of the cross. So they had a whole procession that marched from where it was held, probably in Constantinople, and brought it up to Poitiers. And uh, so what 
she wanted from Fortunatus was a hymn so that when the procession came into the abbey, they would have this great big hymn for the cross as they brought in this holy relic, this piece of the cross of Jesus' crucifixion. Um, I do believe in some relics, and if you want to talk to me about which ones I do and which ones I don't believe in, I'm happy to talk about them. I'll tell you a couple that I believe in 100%. The first one is the Shroud of Turin. I believe in that 100%. I think that that really is the cloth that covered Jesus. I think the, the image of the blood, uh, the type of blood, the chemicals that they've examined in the blood, um, is con all of the wounds that you see imprinted on the fabric, all of that is consistent with the passion narratives and with the historic burial practices. And the other one is the Volta Santo, is what it's called, but it's the face cloth. So it, one re uh, this is one reason why the altar is dressed up the way it is. There's a fair linen, which is about the length of a body, because it's the body cloth, and then underneath the elements for consecration, there is a second piece that is put down called a corporal, which is the face cloth. So the Volta Santo is the face cloth from the tomb, and that one has an imprint of an actual face that has wounds consistent with somebody who had a crown of thorns, who was beaten, and the, the blood type matches the Shroud of Turin, and all of the chemicals uh, that are in the bloodstream are consistent with traumatic death. I believe in that stuff in those two, 100%. Now, if you tell me that the Basilica in Kansas City has the knuckle bones of St. John the Baptist, and I can go see the knuckle bones of St. John the Baptist, stuff like that I'm a little less convinced by. I would perhaps be convinced by a monastery that still said that they claim to have a piece of the, the one true cross. And I'd be curious, and I'd want to go see it. So don't be... Don't be uh, worried by the fact that we're talking about relics here, because they're not necessarily bad things. Um, Rhonda, you had a question? I just remember when you did the, uh, the videos or the pictures of when you and Kevin went to Israel. Mm -hmm. Yes, the cell. That was the cell, uh, the high priest's cell. And there was something about the, the shroud and everything, and that made me, I, I was kind of iffy on. I watched, you know, documentaries and uh -huh. stuff, and you guys brought that and you said that, and I thought, well, that is the shroud. Yeah, I'm convinced. There, and what she's talking about is in Jerusalem, at the ruins of the, the um, Caiaphas, the high priest's palace, there are, there are dungeons there, and remember, Jesus is taken at night, and then the next morning goes out to see Pilate. So they take him, and they beat him, and they flog him, and then they throw him down into this dungeon, which you'd, you'd be lowered in with a rope, and it's basically like a pit, sort of like what they, like the cistern that they would throw, that they threw Joseph into. And there is a blood stain that was soaked up into the stone that is still there that is the perfect imprint of someone with a bloody back that leaned up or kind of slumped against the wall of the cell. Now that wouldn't necessarily mean anything by itself, but the blood type on the wall matches the blood type on the Volta Santo and on the Shroud of Turin. So if you believe that, like I do, that the Shroud of Turin and the Volta Santo are legitimate, then all that the blood in the pit does is
confirm that because then you think, well, that's the blood of Christ um, in, in that area. So, yeah, I could talk a lot about that. Just don't be concerned about the hymn because it was written for the parade of a uh, relic. Okay. Um, the plain chant that, uh, that uh, Fortunatus wrote is very nice. Actually, it's, it's a very nice plain chant. Um, it'd be cool if we could sing the hymn in the original plain chant. It's not included. The, the plain chant is not included in the hymnal. Uh, the, but the tune here retains the plain chant. And I, I'm, you know, I'm actually kind of disturbed because I was uh, reading a blog from a pastor that I know who is very knowledgeable about hymnody, and he complained about the hymn in the hymnal and said that the tune, um, it bastardized the, t the plain chant or... Uh, something to that effect, and I thought, I thought, I, I don't think that at all. I think that the plain chant is kind of a hard thing for most congregations to be able to sing, just to open the, I mean, you don't, you can't open a book of plain chant and just automatically know how to sing it, and if everything in the hymnal were, were like that, well, I, it, it'd be a whole lot harder to sing that kind of stuff. So, this fellow who did this tune took the plain chant and actually did what, what Luther himself and a lot of the Lutheran reformers did. They took the key, um, the key line of the chant and all of the notes that they thought were the most important in the chant and then condensed the chant tone into a more uh, strophic, more hymn, uh, hymnic setting. Uh, and you'll hear it, I'll, I'll, sh I'll play it for you. You can hear the chant, and then you'll hear the tune, and you'll realize how similar the tune is to the actual chant. And this is the last little bit before we do the tune. The, um, the new tune is composed by a fellow named Paul Weber. I think Paul Weber. Yeah, Paul D. Weber. And a uh, little bit about Weber. Paul Weber received an MDiv from... Christ Seminary in Exile. Does that ring a bell? There's another name for it, and I'm not going to say the name for it just yet. I want to see if you recognize Christ Seminary in Exile. Yes, right, 7X! <laughs> so this guy's in the first class that graduates from 7X. He got an MDiv and then didn't get sent anywhere in Missouri Synod because he, his 7X thing, his Seminex degree was worthless, his Seminex education was worthless, so he instead um, got another MDiv from uh, the Lutheran School of Theology in Chicago, which is a seminary of the, yes, ELCA, and is now an ordained pastor in the ELCA, um, which is ba basically all of the Seminex guys and all of the professors who regrettably were actually very, very, very brilliant men, just kind of misguided in a couple things, ended up all going to the ELCA. So anyway, I just thought that that was kind of funny because I started, I said, I don't know this name, so I started researching him. And he's, he has his own website because he's a composer of sacred music and he used to teach at a college in North Carolina, uh, sacred composition and choral um, conducting. And he... Uh, proudly right there on his bio on his website. We're a proud graduate from the first class of Christ Seminary in Exile. And I read that and my jaw just hit the floor because I said, what? 
I have not actually, I've only heard about people who graduated. I've never actually encountered somebody who did, let alone somebody who bragged it about it in that way. It's just kind of a funny thing. So there's a little bit of history for you. Now, oh yeah, this is a cool picture. It's about, it's from that full of eyes um, website again. I just like it so much. But this is from today. The strong man, um, you'll hear it in the Gospel of Luke. The strong man guards his house, but one stronger than he comes and takes away his armor and binds him. And that's what this is a representation of. The, you see all the people being brought out of the mouth of death in Christ. It, you probably can't see it from so far away. Maybe you feel further away because you are, because so many people have started coming to Bible class, we need to add two more tables. <laughs> Isn't that great? Spewing out. He is spewing out. And this is actually just a sketch, but I like it. I, sometimes I like the rough sketches because they, I don't know, they seem um, a little down to earth. Okay, here's the, this is the chant. Um, See, isn't that nice? But it's not the kind of thing you want to see in your hymnal, especially not with all these little square notes, because here's, I'm just going to fill you in on a secret. Uh, music has advanced beyond the noom, but when you're singing Gregorian chant, it's all still to this day written in nooms like this. So you have to learn how to read a completely different kind of music in order to do this. And if you don't believe me, I have a whole bunch of books in my office. And if you ever want to learn how to read it, I also have a really nice book that teaches you how to read Gregorian chant. But now we're going to listen to the actual hymn tune, so you might want to follow along. And I found this, which is by our own Concordia Theological Seminary, Contori. Proud alum of the Contori, I sang with them myself. <laughs> so, <laughs> Just by accident that you found that. Actually, it was. I didn't. This 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 album came out in 2019. So actually, I am. There are some uh, things that I am singing in on this album. Not this one though. I didn't sing this. But so you can follow along. 4:55, and then we'll sing it together. Just ooh, three stanzas. One, two, and six. We'll sing. But you have to listen to it first. Whoops, I'm sorry. Oh! Let's do this again. I just wanted to turn it up.
Do you hear how it sounds like the chant, but it's sort of smoothed out? Okay, we'll listen to one more stanza and then we'll sing. <laughs> Okay, stanzas one, two, and six. Mm, here we are. Mm, no, this is sorry. The royal banners forward go. The cross shows forth redemption's flow. Where he by whom our flesh was made our ransom in his flesh has paid. Where deep for us the spear was dyed, life's torrent rushing from his side, to wash us in the precious flood where flowed the water and the blood. Stanza six. To the eternal three in one let homage meet by all be done. As by the cross thou dost restore, so guide and keep us evermore. Okay, very good. Take a look at the text of the hymn. It's on your handout uh, on the back. And look at it on the handout, not in the hymnal, because there's a, there is a stanza that the hymnal leaves out. Because, and I just want you to do that because the text is so good. It's just really beautiful text. All right, I've got to go. Enjoy your little bit of extra time.